0: Thank you for listening to the Alan Wright Sermons Podcast. I'm his son, Matthew, and we have been splitting up the sermons every other week at our house church that my wife and I host on our farm. If you're interested in joining us, check out WrightFarmHouseChurch.com. Enjoy today's lesson. All right, so uh, for 19 lessons now, (laughs) and some of you, this is your first one out here. Uh, Don't let me step on her. Hi, Ebba. Uh, for 19 lessons now, we have studied the lessons that we can learn from David's life in the books of First and Second Samuel. Uh, and I hope that you have found discernment in them like, like I have, um, but I'm going to ask you to stick with me here for a little while longer, um, because if you haven't seen it already in the last couple of lessons... We have entered into the latter half of David's life, and it is the it is the darker half of, of the story. Um, this part of the story is covered, it is covered in a shadow. And and we need to we need to live in that shadow for just a little bit to to learn some important lessons. Uh, and the shadow that I'm speaking of is the shadow and story of human rebellion against God. okay. Today's story, uh, if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles or, or apps or whatever, 2 Samuel chapter 13, I realize it's a little hard to see the screen, so it might be easier to just uh, have your Bibles open into that chapter. Uh, but today's story takes us away from David a little, and it, and it, instead it focuses on his children. Uh, any parent who has had the experience of seeing how their children watch them uh, and, and emulate them can tell you that a child's story is always interconnected to our own. If if you write, if you were to write a biography about your life, um, your as a parent, your children would always somewhere be included in that story. Second Samuel is is no exception, but the story it tells about child, David's children is an ever-escalating tragedy. It just just keeps seeming to get worse and worse. In two short chapters of 2 Samuel, and, and really two short chapters of David's life, we see him fall into some terrible sins, and we're about to see how those decisions will affect his children. David's two sons, Amnon and Absalom, They catch the contagion of David's sin. They they catch the contagion of the sin that David committed involving Bathsheba and Uriah, the sins of of lust and murder. So we'll read in, in 2 Samuel chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Now, Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. This story is a story of nearly untethered lust, but it's not entirely untethered because Amnon is the crown prince uh, and oldest son of David. His lust and his decisions always come tethered to power. And Amnon hatches a a plot to get Tamar alone. He pretends to be sick, and then he asks for his sister to attend him. We continue reading in verse 8. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down, and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, sister. Come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. Amnon's sexual violence is horrifying. Any sane reader of this story wants justice and wants justice immediately. But what does David do? What does David the father do? Well, we, we learn that he's angry, right? We, he, we learn that he's furious, but he remains silent. There's no immediate justice from, from David the king. And the narrator says here in verse 20, the narrator says, So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. This, this statement is a tragic, painful, and awful understatement, really. It's an understatement. Tamar is now living in the, in the hell of sexual violence. And, and what about Amnon? What happens with Amnon here? Nothing. He just gets to move on like the feckless, wretched man that he is, but he learns an important lesson. Amnon learns an important lesson here in the process. Power absolves even the worst atrocities. And not much has changed today, has it? The top leaders and their children in our own government commit terrible atrocities, and power absolves their crimes. Amnon is just an earlier example of what we see today. Nothing is new under the sun. I said that to you earlier, didn't I? So Tamar's full brother Absalom, he has decided to get his vengeance. He's going to get his vengeance. Uh, against Amnon. He waits a couple of years and he hatches his own plot to get Amnon alone at a feast. So let's pick up the story here in verse 28. Then Absalom commanded his servants Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. So Absalom takes his revenge. He murders his own brother and he flees the country. And again, what does David do? Nothing, nothing. He, He mourns the loss of both of his sons in their own ways. And Tamar, she languishes, but nothing changes. Welcome to David's family, right? Welcome to David's family. Pretty dysfunctional, dysfunctional, isn't it? And and I think dysfunctional really isn't even a strong enough word for what is happening here. And, and the sad thing today is that dysfunction seems to be the norm in most families. Not always on the scale that, that we see in this chapter, Uh although power and wealth have this tremendous capacity for amplifying family dysfunction, but still for a lot of us, this story, it isn't too far from the mark. Uh, for some people, the word family is unfortunately synonymous with sexual abuse and, and violence. And for others, it's the abuse of words and, and language or other kinds of abuse. But no matter who we are, we all we all have levels of dysfunction in our families, and and we desperately hope that our kids aren't going to make the same mistakes that we made. And, but many children growing up in dysfunctional families, they'll make vows and they'll say, "I'm not going to be like my parents. Uh, I'll do things differently than they did." But the sad truth is that we often we often become the things. That we swore we would never uh, actually become, and, and this story is letting us know why. Why that is because sin is generational, sin is contagious. In in the modern West where we live, we've become we've been led to believe by uh, popular communication mediums that that we tend to operate under the assumption that my choices my choices are my own, you know. That my choices they only affect me. Uh, they don't really affect other people like my children. Uh, we act as though our character and our lives are hermetically sealed uh, from the outside. My bad decisions that I make, they don't affect, they don't affect others around me, is the attitude. But this story, this story shows us how wrong that assumption really is. We are not sealed off containers. We are porous beings, human beings. Um, evil pollutes for generation, for generations. Sin corrupts. Sin is corrupt. So we've seen this on the national level, I think, where we've almost become numb to the tragedies that the, new, the news will keep trying to feed us and normalize. And it's a distraction because we begin to believe that the tragedies and this social contagion that they must happen on a much larger scale, right? But it's not true. It's not true. These social contagions, they are passed on through our families. They are, they are passed on through our friendships, right? Uh, in offices where we work, even. In relationships with the people that we have in our lives. These are This is where this is passed on. And when we watch David's own sin get Amplified and, and replicated in his own children, it cuts through the lie that what I do doesn't affect everyone around us. We are interconnected with everyone around us. Everything we do affects others. Your, your choices away from your children shape your children. Your choices away from your friends, they shape your friends. Your, your choices away from your co-workers, they shape your co-workers. The, and the true mystery isn't that we catch each other's sin sickness. That's not the mystery. The true mystery is that there's actually a cure. The The only cure is actually a different kind of social contagion, right? It's a counter contagion to this sin. This sin sickness. Uh, And this counter contagion is the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. When his love enters into a sick human system, it doesn't send that system cascading uh, downward into even worse destruction. Instead, when his love enters a system, that counter contagion actually begins to remake the system. Um, Because when we experience the fullness of of Jesus' sacrificial love, it it frees us from the need to take from others. It breaks the chain of sin and and the chain of selfishness. The contagion of self-sacrifice actually begins to infect us so that we want to replicate that self-sacrifice. And we want to do that in our own life. Um, And and when that counter-contagion gets a hold of, of a family, when it gets a hold of a family, when it gets a hold of a friendship circle, or when it gets a hold of an office, it's like heaven coming to earth. It, it reveals that we are serving in God's kingdom on earth now. We are serving in his kingdom now. And we are infected with, with peace and joy. And we want to imitate that self-sacrifice that Jesus showed us. Just thinking about a really simple story from this week in my office where I work. Uh, at my computer, I set my Bible in front of me. And I'm a little bit new. I've been there a month and a half. And a lady walked by my area and she said, I need to get back to that. And I said, and I thought it was office speak, like back to what, typing or something? She said, I need to get back to that Bible right there. I just had my Bible out. This is the contagion that we're talking about. This is, the, this is the way to open up conversations. You know, I read my Bible, but I wasn't sitting there you know just just being just reading my bible but i had it out in front of me this is the kind of thing that that we that we see if we do that so i want to say another thing too real quick and i know there's the other way around it but i didn't grow up wishing i was different from my parents because they showed the example of the self sacrifice of jesus so you can choose one way or the other as a parent or as a human you can you can choose to be the example of self sacrifice or the example of Selfishness, and I grew up saying, "I want to be like my parents." <laughs> so I just want to make sure that that's understood. <laughs> so this week, let's ask ourselves. Let's ask ourselves this question. Uh, let's meditate on this question right here. Which contagion do you want to spread? Selfishness or the self-sacrifice of Jesus? What would that look like practically? If we if we chose Jesus, well, here's what it would look like to come into Jesus' presence. And saturate ourselves in scripture, to sit at his feet in prayer, and, and to do it enough to, to get enough contact with him that you actually want to live your life like Jesus, live, your, live a life of sacrifice. And if we did this, how would, how would your family change? How would your office change? You know, how would your friendships change? So let's bring the counter contagion of Jesus' sacrificial love into our lives. And and God can use the seeds that we plant through our examples to change generations. This is what this lesson teaches us. We can change generations down the line from us in a good way, in in a way Jesus wants us to do that. Thank you for listening to the Alan Wright Sermons podcast. We hope you'll join us next time. God bless you and have a wonderful week.